0: At a men's breakfast that we had recently, Dr. George Hillman asked us all to write down, a whole bunch of guys here asked us to write down the best advice we'd ever been given. And it was really, it was really fascinating. I want to show you some of the responses. These are what the guys wrote down, just a few of them. Uh, Better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Don't be afraid to fail. Keep an eternal perspective. Hard work won't kill you. Two wrongs don't make it right. Be still and trust God Best advice ever, keep your eye on the ball. I like that one. As your income increases, so will your lifestyle level. The secret to saving is not to let that happen. Be content. Uh, never give up. Never surrender. Keep your wife happy. Uh, don't just join the Army. Go airborne. That was you, AJ. I know who that was. Tell the truth. If you want to be a doctor, get a degree in business. Um few more. Pride goes before the fall. The truth will always come out. Take the easy road and tell it the first time. Your identity is in Christ. Don't spend money you can't afford to lose. And then a wise monkey doesn't monkey with another monkey's monkey. <laughs> Aren't those great? And now here's one more. Uh, this was the one that appeared most often. It had a number of different forms. I, I rendered it here in the, uh, the way my mom said it repeatedly to me as a child. If you can't say something edifying, don't say anything at all. If you can't say something edifying, don't say anything at all. Of course, that saying is based on Ephesians 4.29. Would you read it with me, please? Ephesians 4.21, uh, just, just line by line, we'll go slowly together. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Well done. Do you understand the point? That's good, because that foundation underlies what we learn today in Paul's letter to Titus. God wants us to distinguish the edifying from the destructive and stop listening to those who spout graceless babble. The false teachers are a major concern throughout the pastoral epistles, the two Timothy letters and Titus. And and Titus has two sections that address false teachers who spout graceless babble. Today we're going to read the first section. It begins in Titus chapter 1, okay? Uh, Open your Bible there if you would. It's after the Timothy letters before Philemon in Hebrew, Titus chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 10. Titus 1 verse 10. For there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, that may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. There's a lot of important information here, wisdom that can make us much more discerning. Just consider... First idea, just consider what the false teachers preach. By the way, that's the first headline in your notes. Uh, Open up your bulletin to your notes. You'll see on the left-hand side, consider what the false teachers preach. There was a great sports columnist around this part of the country. He's now retired, and he would regularly write, watch the stupid game, right, right? Whenever people would float idiotic theories about coaches or athletes, this guy would say, just watch the game. You'll know what's real if you pay attention to what they say and do on the field. In the same way, you'll know what's wrong if you just pay attention to what the false preachers say. Paul says, watch their stupid game. It was true then, it's true now. First thing, Paul notes what theologians call judaizing, Um If you want to learn more about this, it's discussed at length in a couple of other New Testament books, especially Galatians and Colossians talk about Judaizing. Um, Paul draws here from his own own mission experience from the Old Testament, from theology, to point out that there are fools who want to make Christianity into a legalistic tradition. And whenever you try to point out their folly, these people use ugly techniques on you. Unable to win a reasonable debate, they, they use empty talk and deception. This is almost always part of identity theology, just as it is rampant in your day in identity politics. Okay? In Paul's day, they stoned you when they couldn't reason with you. In our day, they storm your classroom and slap, slash your tires. Right? One very popular way to do this Judaistic nonsense is to treat the Mosaic covenant as if it were continuous, which it is not. And the Abrahamic covenant as if it has an ending, which it does not. Now you may know that exactly opposite of the clear Old Testament truth. In reality, Moses' law was always temporary. It was always waiting for the Messiah to fulfill it. Abraham's covenant of grace that will bless people forever goes on forever Judaizers try to reverse that they teach you have to leave grace behind and you have to become a Jew in order to rightly have a covenant relationship with God they extend the Mosaic Covenant beyond its obvious fulfillment and they avoid the eternal grace promised in Abraham's covenant I remember back when our church missionary John Cantor uh, used to be a pastor he was a pastor of a messianic congregation he um, lunch uh, one day, I took him to lunch one day to ask him how things were going, how's pastoring going. And John described some really hard battles he was having with, with legalistic Judaizers who were intimidating everybody in his church. Get this, now listen, John told me that it wasn't any racial Jews that were the problem. In fact, he said, Wayne, in most Messianic congregations, the racial Jews aren't the problem. No, no, it's Gentiles who desperately want to be Jews that jump in and adopt all of Moses' law and and they ruin things, Judaizers. Of course, as Paul points out, this can bring big profits to these people. Uh, This is a major issue every time, every place. I especially see it in Latin America today. There is in Latin America a very popular kind of charismatic preaching, charismatic preaching that, that proclaims that people are not Christians. They're not really Christians unless they, they have some sign or do some special work. Such as blatantly unbiblical, but they never preach the whole text. You ever notice that? What these people do is they will pull out just specially selected words so they can avoid the idea that salvation is biblically by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They, they don't want that. All right. Now, this Judaizing of our era, get this, it's not usually, even in Latin America, it's not usually tied to race uh, or to the Old Testament. It's instead joined to the prosperity gospel message. This makes those preachers wealthy. And by the way, they don't apologize for that because they say, look, if I'm this wealthy, I must be right. This shows the blessing of God. In fact, if you will just send them money, all your money would be good, and and do the things that they say you need to do to be real Christians, then you'll get rich too. By the way, if you don't, it's your fault because you didn't work up enough faith. All right? Empty talk and deception indeed. Listen to what they preach. They teach myths. Uh, Look at verse 14. You see that? Myths. This is almost surely a reference to mystical teaching. Uh, Mystics have always been a problem for Jews and Christians. Each generation has had their mystics. Uh, The mystics claim that there are certain experiences they have and that these experiences give them special revelation from God. They give them extra words from God that are on par with or quite frankly usually above the bible and their importance Uh, the greek orthodox church is is still riddled with this lunacy today and i love many greek orthodox friends of mine but i have watched as dozens and dozens of greek orthodox worshipers recite uh something called the jesus prayer over and over and over and over again until they enter a trance in which they claim god speaks to them In Belarus, um, I once had a great conversation after church with this priest who had been leading the mystical Jesus prayer exercise. We were having a very nice talk. But the second that I brought up Jesus' instruction on the folly of meaningless repetition from Matthew chapter 6, the priest refused to talk to me anymore and he went and hid behind the altar screen where I could not go. Mysticism. Probably the most popular myth today in the West comes from the uh, Jewish mysticism of Kabbalah. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Kabbalah? Okay, it's, it's a fairly strong influence in our pop culture. It's unbiblical foolishness. It is cloaked uh, in the guise of oral law. Kabbalah says there are these secret things that you don't know, but we know. And Moses passed them on orally to the priests, and they've come all the way to us. Myths. Uh, verse 14 tells us the final thing we hear from false teachers a rejection of the truth. They reject God's words. That's their big rebellion. Contrast that with the good elders who are identified as holding fast to the faithful word. Look at the criteria for eldership. Same passage, up in verse 9. Holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict. False teachers, on the other hand, reject the truth. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but most false teachers through the ages have rejected the idea of absolute truth altogether. This is seen all the way from the sophists of classical Greece to the postmodern professors on today's campus. Okay, This kind of madness doesn't just tear up other homes. It harms the poor false teachers themselves. God wants them refuted so they'll hush for their own good as well as for everybody else's. Just Look what the falseness does to their own souls. Look what it does to them. Go to verse 15. Verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. As we summarize on the right side of your notes, their minds are defiled. That means they've lost the ability to think straightly. This is much worse than mental illness. The, the mentally ill person, um, she, she may struggle to think sanely, but she almost always, almost always, even the most mentally ill person knows when they're off. These poor fools don't even know they're off. They cannot think clearly at all. They have so warped morality in their heads, they've defiled their own mind and their own conscience. Thank goodness we Christians never do that. But we do. Let me walk you through some very disturbing research. Um, I want to read you the introduction to a brand new study. This is done by Barna and Summit. It's very well written. I just want to read you the introduction. In an increasingly globalized and interconnected world, Christians are more aware of and influenced by disparate views than ever. But just how much have other worldviews crept into Christians' perspectives? Barna's research shows that only 17%. Of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly. Okay, this is not just somebody who's a cultural Christian, somebody who attends church regularly and says their faith in Jesus Christ is very important to them. Only 17% actually have a biblical worldview. So if Christians are open to non biblical perspectives, what are they believing? Here's a few notable findings among practicing Christians. 61% of Christians today agree with ideas rooted in what's called new spirituality. We'll get into that in a moment. I'll explain it. 54% resonate with postmodernist views. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism, which is atheist. And 29% believe ideas based on secularism. Let's cover just a few of these aspects of our defiled minds. I want to start with the new spirituality. Look up at the slide if you would. You can see the, uh, the summary of the research, and I want to read to you this well-written report. Practicing Christians find the claims of new spirituality among the most enticing. Perhaps because it holds a positive view of religion, it emphasizes the supernatural and simultaneously feeds into a growing dissatisfaction with institutions. For instance, almost 3 in 10 practicing Christians strongly agree, strongly agree that all people pray to the same God or spirit no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. Wow. Further, the belief that meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is has captured the minds of more than one quarter of practicing Christians. 38% of those under 45. That is Star Wars! That is Star Wars! It is nonsense! Obi-Wan Kenobi is still dead! That's ridiculous. Let's go on. The new spirituality worldview... It's also inched its way into Christian ethics. One-third of practicing Christians, 32%, strongly agree that if you do good, you'll receive good. If you do bad, you'll receive bad. Now, this is in the Bible. It's called retribution theology, but it's not all that's in the Bible. It always gets crossed up in the Bible with things called grace and mercy. Uh, They go on. This karmic statement, though not explicitly from Scripture, appeals to many Christians' sense of ultimate justice. For example, another Barna study found that 52% of practicing Christians strongly agree with this statement. The Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. The Bible does not teach that. It is nowhere in here. Overall, at least 61% of practicing Christians embrace at least one of these ideas rooted in new spirituality. Let's look next at secularism. The secular worldview promotes the scientific method as the explanatory framework for life. It advances a rational and materialistic view of the world. For the most part, here's some good news, practicing Christians resist scientism and Darwinian belief. Only 10% strongly agree that a belief must be proven by science to know it's true. Uh, Believing human beings are made in the image of God and not just highly evolved matter. Christians see value of people as inherent. Only 13% of practicing Christians strongly agree that a person's life is valuable only if society sees it as valuable. Hooray! Right. That, that's good news. That's good news. Those are low numbers. However, a larger contingent of practicing Christians are more inclined toward materialism, the, the view of the material world that this is all there is. For them, meaning and purpose comes from working hard to earn as much as possible so you can make the most of life. That is a view held by one-fifth of practicing Christians. We Christians have listened to false teaching and it has defiled our minds. We, we only have time for one more example of postmodernism. Again, Barna's summary is excellent. Listen to this. Postmodernism advances the idea there is no such thing as objective truth. Postmodern thought argues that, that claims on ultimate reality are subjective uh, by virtue of their context. That, that is, We are limited by our experience. The best we could know is truth for ourselves, ourselves only. For example, almost one-fifth of practicing Christians, 19%, strongly agree no one can know for certain what meaning and purpose there is to life. Wow. A similar perspective also resonates with many Christians when it comes to views of morality. Almost a quarter strongly agree that what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes And 30% of Christians who live in the city are sympathetic to the postmodern insistence that that capital T truth, real truth, leads inevitably to oppression. They strongly agree with that last statement. If your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, your beliefs must be wrong. As a whole, more than half, 54% of practicing Christians embrace at least one of the postmodern statements assessed in our research. So, what does all this mean? It means we need Titus 1. Titus 1. And we need it badly. Listen to the summary uh, head researcher, Brooke Heppel. The call for the church and its teachers and thinkers is to help Christians dissect popular beliefs before allowing them to settle into their own ideology. Informed thinking is essential to developing and maintaining a healthy biblical worldview and faith as well as being able to have productive dialogue with those who espouse other beliefs. Read verse 15 again. Verse 15. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their conscience is also defiled. They have so diluted their brain with filth, their conscience is broken. It doesn't work rightly anymore. This is the opposite of First 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. God's instruction is love from a good conscience. That means one that is, that is working well. It has freedom to warn us about right and wrong. False teachers always, listen, they always want to water down, defile the inbuilt human sense of right and wrong. You remember that. The next time that you excuse some movie in your life or some activity because it's only, it's only, it's only a little bad. right? Oh, it's only a little bad. You tell me. You just tell me. You're having a glass of iced tea. Do you want me to put just a little bit of antifreeze in there? Do you just a just a little? I only want to put a little bit of antifreeze into your iced tea. Do you want yes or no? Do you want that? Why not? Because it don't kill you. (laughs) It's bad. It's bad for you in the same way God doesn't want even a little defilement of my conscience, right? Not even a little. Look at what falseness does to human souls. Uh, Verse 16, Uh, read that again. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, disqualified for any good work. Their works expose their heresy. Now, the works aren't the main issue. The doctrine is, but praxis always follows thought. This is a major theme we're going to see in Titus. Orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. Right thinking should lead to right acting. If not, adjustments are needed. That, that was Jesus' point when he addressed the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, he said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. If not, adjustments are needed. Likewise, as we're going to see in Titus, maladoxy, wrong thinking, will inevitably lead to malpractice, wrong acting. Of course, false teachers don't just hurt themselves. Let's go back through the whole section and look at the damage they cause other people. Go to verse 10. Verse 10 tells us they deceive. You see that? This is heartbreaking, and we see it all the time. For example, return to that research on the Christian worldviews, okay? Look at this. Over one-third of active church-going Americans who are under 45 years old that call themselves believers, over one-third believe that what is morally right depends on that person's own belief system. Not a fixed sense of truth, not Scripture, but whatever that person wants to believe is right for them. This is nonsense. It won't stand up to three minutes of debate. It, It can't. Suppose that I decide what is best for me is to shoot and kill Trey here on the first row, okay? I grab my gun, I pull it out and say, you know what? I feel what is best. Trey, Trey really ticked me off the other day. This is the best thing to do. Boom, I take Trey out. Because I believe that does it make it right. Good heavens, that was a weak no. Do you not like Trey? <laughs> Trey's an awesome guy. <laughs> You'd be a little more defending. I'm sorry. (laughs) Matt, would you give him a hug? That was kind of sad. No, it's a crime. It is an absolute crime. My feelings don't make it truth. But you know what happens in the world? There are false teachers abounding who teach relativistic morality. Listen, relativistic morality is always amorality at best, and it is much more often immorality. Instead of thinking it through and responding to these people with truth that is spoken in love, we just lap up their deception. They overthrow households. Um, Look at verse 11. Now, I want you to compare verse 11b of Titus 1 with what we read earlier in Ephesians 4.29, right? False teaching is the opposite of edification. They are deconstructionists. Always. They always tear down instead of building up. Uh, Look at this. The Greek word onatrepo is what we translate overthrow. It's the first place I can find it in the writings is to somebody overthrowing a table with a bunch of papers on it. It means to turn something upside down. By the time that Paul wrote, a couple hundred years later, onatrepo had become regularly used for the disruption to a family when there was one really unruly person in that family living out of control. For example, we have a papyrus scroll from uh, right about the time Paul wrote where it says uh, this one drunkard in a household on a trepo uh, turns upside down the whole housework. that's That's what alcoholics do. This is an apt picture of what deconstructionists do. I've watched this firsthand. My first degree, my first field of study was history. Okay, when I was studying history, most of what was being written was constructionist. Here's what happened, here's why, here's what we can learn about it. It was based on research and facts. Not now. Not, I'm, I'm telling you, just about everything being written academically in my field is completely on a trepo. They have absolutely no regard for truth or research or facts Everything is about on a triple. In fact, they don't even care what they say as long as they turn over something, right? And the same thing happens in churches. Beware on a triple. False teachers, they also siphon funds. Um, obviously, this is very bad for them now and in eternity. But, but, you know, I think maybe the worst part of the redirection, how they redirect money to themselves, I think the worst part is it discredits the legitimate funding that is needed in biblical churches. I've seen this happen in the lives of many Christians. They're deceived by some charlatan and then they spend years saying no, no, no and missing out on the blessing of giving, right? I have seen people that it has taken them decades to get over the wounding they had from the false teacher and get back into the joy of being a cheerful giver. By the way, Just so you know, this is why our church has an independent, non-staff elder board who oversees all salaries. The the staff aren't on that board. That is an independent elder board. And by the way, absolutely no staff person here can redirect funds outside of the elder approved budget. Paul laid this practice down earlier. He gave a very famous speech to the elders um, in the city of Ephesus. We don't know if they were from one big church or a number of churches, but they all met Paul on a beach as he was on his way for the last trips of his life, and he said this to them, Be on guard for yourselves, elders, and for the flock the Holy Spirit appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men... Men will rise up for your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. In every way I've shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak. And keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Unlike Paul and healthy elders, false teachers love to receive. They also drag others into their self-condemnation. That's the the point of the quote in verse 12. Look at this. This quote may be from the poet Epimenides. I can't say for sure because we don't have any of his poetry. Very, very famous ancient poet. He's quoted a lot by other people, but we don't have any of his works. By the way, there there is another Cretan poet, Callimachus, who also called Cretans liars. Now, please listen. This This is really funny. The point in Callimachus and Epimenides and Paul is not to make fun of people on Crete. They are not picking on the people on the island. It's to show that the seeds of fallacy are always sown by false teachers. Think, okay, it is a Cretan poet who says all Cretans are liars. That's funny. (laughs) They can't all be liars unless that statement's false, in which case they're all truthful. And Paul joins in the fun by saying, that's a true statement. (laughs) But it was made by Cretan. You see, this this is the circular reasoning of the lie paradox. Paul wants to make sure you see there's a lie paradox here. Paul's having a great time. He's having fun. He's laughing at the nonsense of false teachers whose ridiculous circular logic always condemns themselves. Apparently Epimenides did this a lot in his writing as well. He laughed at self-defeating circular poor logic. Only, it's not funny when others get sucked into it, especially young people who are very prone to it. When false teachers draw other people into their deconstructionist, self-defeating thinking, it is incredibly sad. Therefore, with that in mind, church leaders must respond. This is a refrain in each of the pastoral epistles, um, Timothy 1, Timothy 2, and Titus. Look at Ray Van Nesta's summary. He really, I think, summarizes really well. False teachers are to be rebuked and silenced. First Timothy 1 and Titus 1. Doctrinal error jeopardizes souls, and therefore it must be dealt with firmly and clearly. Hope is held out that false teachers and their followers will repent. That's what 2 Timothy 2 is all about, in which case they will be received by the church. However, those who persist in teaching false doctrines must be put out of the church, as we'll learn in Titus 3. Isn't that good? Very nice summary. The church must respond. Now, there are five specific steps listed here in Titus chapter 1. First one, silence them silence them. Now, this is often misunderstood. It cannot mean censorship. There's no way this means censorship. If it did, Titus chapter 3 makes no sense, nor does 2 Timothy. You can't reason with people if you're putting tape over their mouths. Presumably, what is intended is that we silence their falsehood by hearing these people out and then refuting them effectively. By the way, a number of you in this church are are impressive in this. I've watched you. You kindly listen, and then you effectively show the person who's wrong from Scripture why the false teaching is false. You're not ugly, you're not argumentative, but you are willing and able apologists for the truth. Well done. Now, when you do that, that either brings people around, the point in 2 Timothy 2, or it hushes them up. That's what it does. By the way, that's why there is not an atheist in the world these days who will debate any longer Christian philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig. No one will take him on because every single one who has met with him has been shown gently, kindly, that their untenable assumptions are ridiculous and it always shuts them up. That is a far cry from censorship. Please don't practice censorship. How many of you read Romeo and Juliet? Okay, how many of you read the spark notes of Romeo and Juliet when you were in ninth grade? Okay, this was Shakespeare's point. This is why you should have read the whole work. It's what he's trying to get across. When you do censorship, you inevitably push people further into the very thing that needs to be silenced. The, 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 the parental censorship in that, in that little Italian city, it drove these poor kids right into an idiotic set of false ideas that ended in their deaths. Church leaders must respond to false teachers by silencing them with reason, not censorship. Step two, rebuke them. Now, it's hard for me to tell whether verse 13 is referring to the false teachers or to their audience. I think it it appears silence in verse 11 is referring to the false teachers and rebuke in verse 13 is for their audience. Uh, When it rained really hard, the creek behind my childhood home would flood, and I mean flood. The, the, waters, the waters would grow from a, a foot or less in our creek to an eight-foot rushing torrent. A couple hundred feet past our house, it got really rough because the creek went through a series of turns through a neighborhood and past the field behind the Lutheran church. One May, a bunch of older teenage idiots were jumping into these floodwaters after a big storm. Yeah, they, they would wildly rush with the current through the sharp curves, grabbing a hold of things, screaming as they were battered on the banks. A couple of them got sucked partway under in and, and, and the undertow and barely crawled their way up to the surface. I knew it was stupid to get in that water. I didn't really plan on risking my life that way, but these older kids were so cool. And they just kept staring me down and egging me on. Come on, Wayne, come on, do it, do it. Thankfully, before I could get near the water, Mr. McClung, my neighbor, got up from his front porch walker. And he walked out and he said, Wayne, you numbskull. He shook his cane. Don't you get near that water if those idiots want to drown. Let them. You're too smart for that. You get in that water, I'm calling your dad. And I sighed and I happily skipped home. Friends, that is what you do for people who are listening to false teaching when you rebuke them. You're saving them and you are turning them toward home. How do you, how do you how do you solve a problem like false teachers? Point number 3. <laughs> Don't give them ministry. Kick them out of the abbey okay? They are unfit for good work. This is very important. Look, sometimes we want to pull somebody closer when they're really off and they're thinking, and that can be fine, but don't kid yourself. Reforming from the inside is absurd, especially if the person is clearly anti-biblical and is unresponsive. All they want is to get in there and eat your group alive. I've watched it happen in many churches and many ministries. You see, most of us want to be liked, so when a truly false teacher comes in, we, we, we want to make them comfortable. We, we assume that just a little nose of the camel under the tent won't hurt, right? Allowing a little heresy into our organization won't make a big problem. In fact, it might make us more attractive to, to them. Instead, all attraction is eroded as the ministry implodes. You've seen it in your own lifetime. Forty years ago, 65% of the people in the United States of America attended a mainline denomination church. Today it's 14% and dropping like a rock. Look in your notes, you'll see the next step for handling falsehoods. Keep speaking strongly what makes for sound doctrine. This is in our last verse. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. But you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. I rather like the New Revised Standard, which says, but as for you, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Here's what's fascinating. Uh, uh, look up here. Say or teach, uh, the Greek laleo, is actually a negative term. It's a negative term outside the Bible. It, laleo means to go on and on and on and on about something. Think, think of... Um, Think of sixth, sixth period math class on a beautiful spring day when you're stuck inside. Sorry. Okay, you love math. Make it English. Fine. You're, you're, you're stuck. Think of watching C-SPAN. Okay. It's just droning on and on and on. All right? But here's what's cool. This is so cool. The biblical writers turned Laleo on its head. They made it a positive thing to go on and on when you're speaking truth. They used Laleo for keeping broadcasting truth even when it's not popular. I, I was talking with one of our church elders about this, and he sent me a great note. Uh, look at this. Randall Satchel wrote me. He said, Wayne... The idea of broadcasting truth, even when it's not popular, reminded me of something I just read. It's an article the great Samuel Johnson wrote. If you don't know Samuel Johnson, uh, one of the more brilliant men probably to walk the planet, a, a British guy, he wrote the first ever dictionary. Okay? Nobody had ever done a dictionary before that. Really genius guy. And he wrote this for the Gentleman's Magazine in 1761. He said, Yet there remains still among us, not wholly extinguished, a zeal for truth, a desire for establishing right in opposition to fashion. That's laleo. Laleo. Another friend, uh, Tracy Bush of our pulpit team, sent me an awesome quote from Albert Moeller's book, We Cannot Be Silent. Look, look what Dr. Moeller says. A failure to speak truth will not merely consign the church to lose biblical faithfulness in its voice and message. It will consign the church to mislead millions of people about their need for Jesus. To take what Scripture declares as sin, sin for which Christ died, and to downplay its severity insults the cross of Christ and misleads sinners about their need for salvation that's only available in Christ's atonement. Hey, guys, when it is demanded that Christians respond with compassion at the expense of truth, we must understand any compassion severed from truth is a false compassion and a lie. Close quote. Now, for our final step, what do we do about false teachers? Go back to a little statement that we rushed over. It's up in verse 15. I'd like you to read it with me, please. Just the first part of verse 15, altogether. To the pure, everything is pure. To the pure, everything is pure. Guard and teach purity. That's the final step in handling false teachers. All things are pure doesn't mean biblical Christians can somehow magically change toads into handsome princes. Okay, That's not what it means. It means that biblical Christians see the positives and they refuse to engage with that which is impure. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team had the best illustration I have ever heard about this verse, to the pure all things are pure. Here's what she wrote me. Cindy wrote and said, Wayne, when my brothers were little boys, my, my mother caught them giggling at a Playboy centerfold. She took the time to find out what was so funny to them rather than impulsively yanking the magazine away from them and yelling. They informed her that the lady had no feet. This foolish footlessness was hysterical to them. Purity sees missing feet. God is calling for that kind of childlike purity in grown-up Christians. The purity of biblical doctrine should inform all of that person's thinking and their living. This is why our church developed the Made for More conferences that we had for youth and their families. This is why I won't watch most TV and most movies. Again, it is not about censorship. It's about Christians training our hearts to be pure, to seek out that which is good. Censorship. Think about Cindy's mom. Censorship would have yanked the magazine and swatted little boy behinds, right? Training took the time to see what they were thinking and inform their opinions about the difference between the naked and the nude. Training isn't about controlling others. It's about spirit-led self-control. Philippians 4.8 is the perfect memory verse for this, and we're all going to memorize it together. Philippians 4.8, I want you to read it with me. Write this on your heart, okay? Everyone together. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Good. Again, again, come on. Memorize, memorize. Finally, brethren. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. All right, let's see how you did. Close your eyes, close your eyes. I'm going to say it again from my memory and you would see how much you can do with me. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come to you in confession. Christian, go before your Lord. Engage with him right now and ask him, which aspects of my life need cleaned of impurities? Confess them. Now ask God to establish discipline and program and joy in your life in cleaning those out. Ask your Lord, where has unbiblical nonsense gained a foothold in my thinking? Lord, please expose it for me and my brethren. The the horrible Barna study didn't just convict other people. That is true of us as well. Help us see where we are not thinking scripturally. And friend, confess this. Where do you need to speak up? Laleo. Where do you need to speak truth in love? Ask God to give you the strength to do so. And by the way, any one of you, anyone studying with me, wherever you are, if you are not a believer in Christ, You are deluded in false teaching. That's it. It's it's a dichotomous issue. You're a sinner. You are separated from God because of your impurity. He's holy. But you know what he did? He made a way for you so that you could be justified in Jesus Christ by trusting in him who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead so that everyone who follows him, everyone who believes in him has a chance to follow him in everlasting life to be sanctified and ultimately glorified. Right now, trust in Jesus. Believe on Jesus as your Savior. If you here this morning just trusted Jesus, raise your hand. If you believed on him, raise your hand and look at me. I want to rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. 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 Father, I pray for myself and for all these believers. I praise you for them. I thank you for them. They are an encouragement to me, and yet they, like me, need growth in this area. Please help us grow in purity. We recognize that much of the impurity in our life is exposed in how we give. It shows where our heart is. So I pray that we will give robustly and cheerfully and thankfully as we take this offering. In Jesus' name, amen.